Well, now we're going to read from God's Word, and we are in the book of John. I'm going to read John 5, 1 through 16. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well and said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we've gone through John, I think we're seeing that Jesus comes to all sorts of people. He comes to people that are in majority culture. He comes to people who are in minority culture. He comes to people high and low. He comes to those who are socially respected, and he comes to those who are social washouts. He comes to those that are highly educated, highly observant, And he also comes to the heretic. He comes to moral paragons and to moral disasters. He comes to the well and to those who are unwell. And today Jesus comes to a man who cannot walk. That man today, that man would be in a wheelchair. And this man has lived in a wheelchair for the past 38 years. But in that time, There were no wheelchairs. That man had no wheelchair. And so he would drag his his non-working legs and drag his torso across the ground. To, To move around, he would have to just muscle his way around using his elbows, using his arms. It was life lying on the ground. You could you could not literally get any lower than this man. Now, how would that affect you? How would that affect your outlook? 
on life, your expectations for life, how would that affect your prospects for marriage and for a family? How would that affect your place, your standing in the community? Well, today we see that Jesus brings healing to the hopeless. Jesus brings healing to those who have no hope. We see three things here in our text. First of all, we see the hopeless walks. Secondly, we see the righteous stumble. And then thirdly, we see the lonely finds a friend. So the hopeless walks, the righteous stumbles, the lonely finds a friend. So first, the hopeless walks. The text tells us that this man was lying on the ground. He was lying next to a pool of water. And this pool of water was reputed to have occasional healing powers. Some, some annotations in the b- biblical manuscripts, they explain the background of this pool in Jerusalem, Bethesda. At this pool, people believed that an angel would occasionally come, occasionally, and stir the waters. And if you were the first person to get into the waters when the angel had reputedly stirred the waters, that water would heal any sickness that was afflicting you. It would, it would give you sight if you were blind. It would restore function if you had a spinal injury. But you had to be the first person to enter the water if it was stirred. Now, with all of that, look at several reasons for why this man was hopeless. First of all, one reason for his hopelessness, for this paralyzed man's hopelessness, it was, it was first of all, his his inability to distinguish himself compared to everybody else around him. His inability to distinguish himself compared to all those around him. Because for this man, he realized that he will never be the first one in the water. And and he realized that even a blind person could move to the water more quickly than he could and, and they, these people, they've gathered around the water pool every day. Maybe they would pass the time asking for money, begging for donations from kind people who would come by and, and give a few coins to the poor. And, and then occasionally, randomly, there would be maybe some murmuring and, and he would realize the crowd's murmuring. Someone thinks they saw the water stirred, invisibly stirred. And so, so then it would just start this rush. This, the sick, the unwell would turn from wherever they are and they would start to run, run. They would start to push to try to get to the water, to be the first to get in and, and to be healed. Verse seven though, this is, this is what that experience was like for this one paralyzed man. Verse seven, he said, I have nobody to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. But after years of this, this man has come to realize he will never, he will never get there first. He will never get the blue ribbon in this little race of of sick people. And someone else is always faster. Someone else is always stronger. And, And maybe a few times, just because of where he was placed and the timing, maybe just a few times, this man, he almost, almost arrived first. But even if he were second, you know what they, you've heard that saying about second place. What's that saying? Second place is first loser. That's a terrible saying, isn't it? But that was for this man. 
he, he will never stand out in the group. He will never get first. He will never be distinguished among his peers. And so he loses hope. That's one of his reasons for hopelessness. Now, another reason for his hopelessness, another reason for his hopelessness in this paralyzed man, it's just the, the, the sheer duration of his trouble. 38 years. It has been so long. 38 years. That is longer than the entire lifetime of plenty of the people in those days. And so for him, he experienced what so many are familiar with. Time, time keeps going and it will test your hope. The longer something goes, the more it will test your hope. When a trial continues long enough, you can start to become resigned to it. And that resignation can turn into despair and and hopelessness. It's, it's one thing to be married, and it's the first year of your marriage, and you're, you've got some worries that are starting in that first fresh year, and, and you've got some worries in that first year. It's another thing to have lived through decades of a loveless marriage, decades of it, 38 years. This man had lost all hope of any healing. So there's the duration, and then one last hope for his hopelessness in this paralyzed man his personal insignificance, his personal insignificance. He knows, he knows that he is merely one person in a crowd. He is just one of many. Verse three, it says, there lay a great multitude of sick people. And then it just starts listing them. There were so many, the sick, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they're all there circled around these two poles, just waiting. It's one thing to be unwell and to be one of three, maybe four people who are not doing well. One of three or four homeless people that that are gathered in a little cluster in the park. Maybe two, three homeless people that are waiting at the median in the middle of traffic, holding up a sign, requesting money from people who are stopped for the light. But this was a multitude, a great multitude. You can think about the footage that maybe you've seen in these cities where there are, are blocks, blocks with the sidewalk just filled, jammed with people lying on the sidewalk, sitting on the sidewalk, living on the sidewalk, lying on the pavement, living under a tarp. Some of them are passed out, drunk, Some of them are just out of their minds, high and stoned. And some of them are there, obviously, with troubled mental health. You've seen those places, those scenes where it just goes for block after block. A a tent city on the city streets in America. This man is living at, he is just one in a hundred. One out of two hundred at the healing pool. And this man doesn't even have a name. It's maybe something like this. They say, they say in the United States, one out of four women in the United States today have experienced attempted rape. And, and they say one in 26 men have experienced attempted rape. That is 47 million people in our country and our times who have experienced an attempt at forcible violation. And, and if that's you, you're one of 47 million you may feel personally insignificant in that mass of people, lost in the mass of 47 million other men and women, but you're not. You're not insignificant. 
You are significant. But this man is hopeless, understandably hopeless. His, his lack of ability, the extended duration of his trouble, and, and just this sense of personal insignificance in this huge crowd of suffering people. And so in this account, this hopeless man, this hopeless man walks. Notice this. Jesus is, Jesus is the kind of person who moves towards trouble. Jesus moves towards people who are in trouble. Verse 6, it says, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him lying there, and Jesus knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. And Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? You know those many accounts that are in the Bibles, in the Bible, in the Gospels, when, when the crowds are coming to Jesus, they're, they're flocking to him, and they are asking Jesus for healing. But you, what you want to notice here in this account is notice the direction of the initiative. Notice the direction of it. Here, Jesus moves toward people in trouble. It's, now, it's a Sabbath. It's the day that it should be a day off for Jesus. But Jesus sees this man and Jesus goes towards him. And notice this. To Jesus, this man is distinguished. It says Jesus knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time. The long duration, that, that was a big discouragement to that man. That's the very thing that draws Jesus to this man. And, and that tells you this. Jesus knows like no one else, Jesus knows how long you've suffered. And, and notice this too. To Jesus, this man is personally significant of, of all the great mass of unwell people that are flocked around those pools, crowded by around, around those water pools. Jesus sees this man. He sees this man, and Jesus knows this man. And Jesus moves towards this man. Can you, can you believe that you matter to Jesus? That no matter how private your pain, no matter how prolonged your pain, you matter to Jesus. And no matter how many other people also have problems to Jesus, you matter. Matthew six twenty six, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Matthew 10, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is, this is the wonderful reformed doctrine of providence. It teaches us that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It, it's telling us that God is so great that he knows every single thing in this whole wide world, every single being in this whole wide world, and God provides providence provides he provides for every single being and and any good thing and every good thing 
that you have ever received or experienced. It was a personally crafted kindness from your Father who's in heaven. And he's that way both to the just and to the unjust. And so we see that Jesus moves towards trouble. He moves towards your trouble, believer. Jesus knows everything about every creature. And Jesus especially knows about your needs. Jesus especially knows about your fears. And Jesus especially knows about your sorrow because he's your brother. You're his brothers. You're his sisters if you're in Christ. He knows about your migraines. He knows how long they are. He knows how long you've dealt with them. He knows your trouble with your in-laws. He knows about all of that. Your troubles matter to Jesus. And the longer your troubles go on and have gone on, the more Jesus notices. And he will come to you. He will come to you. And Jesus comes to this man. And so this hopeless man Walks. This is the other thing that we, that we see between Jesus and, and this man who's just on the ground, literally. This, this guy has been knocked on the ground by life. The other thing to see between Jesus and this man who's without hope. You see here, you see a sinner taking steps. A sinner, but taking steps. Notice two things that Jesus addresses with this man. Jesus addresses with this man his paralysis and he addresses the man's sin, his paralysis and his sin. So you see Jesus heal the man's physical need. He heals the man's paralysis, the medical problem. Verse six, he asks the man, do you want to be made well? In verse eight, he tells the man, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. Jesus addresses this man's physical need. But then, then they get interrupted. And, and the way that you can put this scene together is, uh, verse 13, the man, after 38 years of not being able to walk, of lying in the dirt, the man is walking, and people start to notice. First, it's just the man and Jesus having this private conversation. The man hops up and starts to walk, and people start to realize, what, what, that guy's walking? What happened? What, he, was there something in the water? He doesn't even go to the water. What, what's going on? And, and, and people are starting to notice, and then with the attention of the crowd growing, it says in verse 13, Jesus slips away. Jesus is not yet wanting to have public notice on that day. But then after things settle down, the man is just starting to live life walking around. And then Jesus again approaches the man and he says, we've got we've to finish what we started here. We need to continue the business that I have started with you. We have talked about your body now let's talk about your soul. So verse 14, it says, Jesus found the man in the temple and said to him, see, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. And so Jesus is saying, I healed your legs. Now let's talk about your soul. He says to the man, you need to stop sinning now. You need to stop your sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, later in the book of John, we're talking about suffering, we're talking about sin, and this is a, a sensitive topic that you need to be very careful about. Later in the book of John, scripture clearly teaches that suffering is not always caused by personal sin. So, your cancer is not necessarily caused by your sin. And, and the life of Job proves it. You have a whole book that proves this. And it is wrong. It is very wrong to approach suffering people and to, and to be 
poking around and asking, well, what did you do? What sin did you sin to bring this suffering upon yourself? So that's a qualifier, a very important qualifier that we all need to have in our heads and, and also have in how we approach one another. But having said that, sometimes, sometimes our sin does bring suffering. For instance, if you commit adultery, if you sleep with someone else's wife and the husband catches you and beats you to a pulp and now you've got suffering, you've got a concussion, you now have a mortal enemy, in that case, your sin caused you suffering. But here's, here's the point with this, this text. This man, this wheelchair-bound man, he was, he was sinning. And Jesus tells him, you need to stop. You need to stop with your sin. So several things to note here. First of all, note this. Jesus has the authority to tell us what to do. Jesus has the authority to tell us what to do and what not to do. And if you don't like that, you won't like Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can tell us what is right and what is wrong. And Jesus also is the only one that has the just objectivity to tell us when we are doing right and to tell us when you, you didn't do right, you're not doing right. He is he's Lord, and so we must listen. So Jesus has the authority to tell us what to do. Secondly, we also see this here. Sin can stew in suffering. Sin can stew and develop in suffering. And so this man suffered much. This man suffered many years. And during those 38 years, some sin in him started to stew, started to grow in strength during his years of suffering. And we don't know what it was. I mean, maybe, maybe the sin that started to develop in him was, was envy, envy of the happy people, envy of the whole people who were around him, who were living and working and laughing and marrying while he just sat on the ground, lay on the ground and watched life pass by him. Maybe it was envy. Maybe it was, maybe it was anger. Who knows? Maybe, maybe his disposition was the kind of person who just naturally already had a volatile temper and, and now, with his paralysis, it was just festering from, from all the mockery that he had to endure. Maybe a temper that was festering, festering under the pity that people showed him. It just it rankled his pride to always have people looking at him and saying, oh, oh, he's, he's, he can't walk. And he just resented their pity, and it just, the anger developed in him. Maybe it was just something simple like stealing. Maybe that was the sin that Jesus was telling him, you need to stop. Maybe it was stealing in his suffering. Maybe he started feeling entitled to take since, since so much had been denied him in life and he had just become very comfortable with taking things that were not his property. Whatever it is, here is the warning. Don't let your suffering, whatever it is, however great, however extensive it is, don't let your suffering excuse any sin in yourself. Don't let your suffering excuse your sin. I mean, you can see how easy that would be, right? You can, you can see how easy it would be to have self-pity. And, and that could lead to self-regard, uh, just an overblown self-regard. And then soon, you're becoming very entitled. You're becoming gossiping. You're, you're becoming impatient. And so sin can stew and even grow strong 
in our suffering. So beware of that. Thirdly, though, we see this. We see that sanctification occurs in steps. Sanctification occurs in steps. So first of all, Jesus deals with just one step at a time. First of all, he deals with this man's physical needs. And then the next step that Jesus takes with him, Jesus builds the man's Christology. This man doesn't even know who healed him. And then the next step that Jesus takes with this man, Jesus starts to deal with this man's personal sin. Do you see how Jesus does this in steps? How he he develops us in steps. Jesus develops your experience of his changing influence on your character. He does it gradually. He does it in steps. Sanctification is a process. And for me, I, I can see how the Lord has done this over time. When I was a teen, it was the first time that I was taught intellectually the theological concept of grace, unmerited favor, goodness from God that I don't deserve. But I was just a teen, and, and for it to, to really work into me and to work into me in a way that changed my character, changed the way I would talk to people, the changed the way I would respond to people, the change had to come gradually. And it did come very gradually, in steps. In steps. So over the years, eventually, I went from a teen to being married. And, and I would sin against my wife. And then I would experience grace in her forgiveness. And, and that would just move me a few more steps, growing in grace, growing in understanding, and having grace worked in me, and, and then over the years, someone, someone else might sin against me. Not me sinning against someone, but someone would sin against me, and then I would need to forgive them. I would need to forgive them and forgive them freely and fully, and that would be just another step in knowing grace, growing in grace. Growth in Christ comes in gradual steps. It's the wonderful Reformed doctrine of progressive sanctification. And so we, we see the hopeless walk. We see the righteous stumble next. Secondly, the righteous stumble at all of this. And, and we'll look more at this in, in the next two weeks. We're looking at this chapter, and, and really it, it takes more than one week to look through it. So we'll look more. But for this week, look at how when Jesus heals this man, and then the man picks up his, his beddings, the blankets and whatever kind of thing that he used as padding, he picks up the beddings that lay on the ground. Now he's walking around, and it's like he was in this wheelchair for nearly 40 years, but Jesus healed him, and so now he's pushing his empty wheelchair away from those water pools. And as he's doing that, he's healed, he's walking, he's, he's, he's wheeling away his wheelchair, his, his bedroll in this case, and then some people come and they stop him, and they accuse him, verse 10, they say, Today is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, some of the practitioners of Judaism took the commandments of God very seriously. And to break the Sabbath, to do your regular work on the Sabbath, it was a sin. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. 
You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath So this was a core value of Judaism, and and historically Christians also count this as a core value. Christians historically also receive the Sabbath command and the Sabbath principle. You don't do your regular work on the Sabbath. For Christians, the Sabbath is Sunday, the resurrection day, And, and we understand that you don't cause others to unnecessarily work on the Sabbath, except for works of necessity, except for works of mercy, and so Hospitals and pharmacies are needed. Emergency transportation is needed. Electricity generation, it's needed. But some of these people see this man with his his role of bedding and and blankets, and they say, stop. They tell him, stop. No work on the Sabbath. No carrying burdens. No moving stuff on the Sabbath. Now, in this, what we need to see is they, at this point, have probably erred, and they have exceeded the prohibitions of the commandment. This man was not doing work. This was not his job. He was not two men and the truck. This was not his job. This man was returning from the hospital with his suitcase. For 38 years, this man had lived in the hospital hoping for something to heal him. And Jesus came and healed this man. And Jesus came and discharged this man from the hospital. And so this man packed up his suitcase and Jesus sent him home from the hospital with his suitcase. That's who they are correcting. And these people tell him that he's sinning. It's a classic case of judging incorrectly. It's a classic case of not seeing the forest for all of the trees. At its core, and this this comes out later, we'll look at this more. At its core, these people are saying, Jesus can't heal on the Sabbath because healing is work and work is forbidden on the Sabbath. And here's what they're missing. Love never contradicts the law. Love never contradicts the law. The Bible says love is the fulfillment of all of the laws. The Sabbath commands, he says, are made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath commands were made for people, not the other way around. And so, of course, healing on the Sabbath, that would be completely fine. Jesus, in another place, points out that if your ox, a giant beast, weighing hundreds of pounds, falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, of course, of course it is okay to put the sweat labor in to pull that ox out of the ditch. It would, it would be cruel to leave that animal stuck in the ditch and even more, even more with a human. If you find someone sick on a Sunday, but it's in your power to heal them, of course the Sabbath was never meant to prevent you from healing and helping a person. And so you can see that these people have hearts that are really completely out of alignment with the intention, out of line with the law that they profess to observe. Verse 16, it says that these particular Jewish practitioners, they don't just disagree with Jesus, they want to kill Jesus, it says in verse 16. And that would be a violation of the sixth commandment but they just can't see it. So let's be careful here. 
Let's be careful. These people are not criminals. These people are not lawbreakers. These people are religious and they're observant. These are people who take their faith and their doctrine very seriously. But in their righteous zeal, they've got no knowledge of Jesus. Does that scare you? It should scare you. It scares me. It is, it is incredibly easy to become knowledgeable about the Bible, to memorize swaths of it, to master the doctrines of the faith. You can do that. To do great sacrificial service for the poor and for, for the spreading of the gospel in, in missions and to wrongly criticize the real work of Jesus Christ in the lives of people. This is very common in the Bible. And I'm prone to it. And you're prone to it. You look at these people and you ask, okay, so what, what exactly is the problem? Is, is it that they're self-righteous? Is self-righteousness the problem here? Perhaps. They certainly seem certain that they are without sin and that the healed man is in sin. So maybe, maybe there's self-righteousness. Maybe that's one of the strands in this cord. But perhaps there's more. Is, is lovelessness the problem? Do they suffer from big heads but a severe lack of love, a severe deficiency of love, perhaps, maybe, because love would have, would have rejoiced in this man's healing and in his walking. And, and we know that love believes the best, and we know that love thinks the best, and we know that love is gentle, love is kind. And so these people certainly look like they lack love. And, and maybe you could say it this way, a quickness, a quickness to accuse can reveal a smallness of love. A quickness to accuse another person can reveal a smallness of love towards that person. And so, how about you? How about me? How about you? Are you quick to accuse? Are you fast at finding the faults of the other person? Because love is patient. Love is gentle. Love is kind. Love believes the best. Love believes all things. So more, more about this next week, but, but for now, the righteous stumble. Now, we see this finally. We, f we see the lonely finds a friend. And this is addressing the, the big human question that everyone, once they, they're developed enough, asks. This big human question, am I alone? Am I alone on a planet of eight billion people? Am I alone? Maybe the most poignant aspect of this man's condition, it's, it's not just that his legs don't work. It's not just that he's dragged himself through the dirt for decades. It's not even just that his sin took root in him during decades of, of his disability. I think maybe one of the most poignant things about him is that he is alone. He's alone. Verse 7, he says, I have no person to help me into the water. He's a, man, he's a man already. He's already a man in profound lowness. His face is in the dirt every day. And he's alone at the bottom. So he's a man in profound 
loneliness. Can I, can I give you a, a definition of hell? Something to help round out the doctrine, the teaching of hell. The Bible does say that, yes, hell is a place of endless fire. And that's true. But hell is also a place of utter loneliness. The key words given when a person is sent and sentenced to hell, depart from me. Depart from me. Hell also is isolation. Are you lonely? Are you isolated? It is everywhere today. Everywhere. How can we find a friend? How? How can we find a person to be with us in our profound need when we're low? A person who can help us to the place of healing, help us to the healing water because we're indistinguished, because we're insignificant. We're utterly not going to attract any notice here. Here's how the lonely finds a true friend. In the gospel, Jesus endured crippling loneliness. Jesus endured ultimate loneliness. He's utterly abandoned by people. He was abandoned by his friends, and he was even abandoned by his father. Who was it that handed Jesus over to be executed? Yes, his friend Judas betrayed him, but also Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose of his father, God to be crucified and put to death. No one, no one was ever more alone in the universe than Jesus. It was hell that he suffered. Why? Jesus was abandoned so that you can be certain that you will never be alone, believer. Jesus died alone for those who deserve hell to be utterly alone. Jesus died alone so that you will never be alone. By Jesus' resurrection and by Jesus' ascension to heaven, Jesus and the Father now send the Spirit into your heart to make a home in you forever for the Father and the Son. Jesus is the one person who truly suffered and died alone so that you will never endure full abandonment and full alienation. Do you know Jesus in this way? Have you come to know Jesus in this way? Nobody is too insignificant for Jesus to notice. No one is too long in their suffering to be healed by Jesus. And no one is too deep in their sin for Jesus to come and to set free. Do you want to stop sinning? Do you want to be made well? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are so motivated by love that you come to us. You take the initiative and come to us. Even when we haven't asked, you took the initiative. And then you even ask us, Ask if we want to be made well. Lord, we want to be made well. Hear your people in their suffering and in their prolonged suffering. Hear your people in their sin and, and give us freedom from our sins and a joy from our salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.